Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Muse, the brain-sensing headband that helps you meditate, and five-star app Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Carpus. Before we get started, a reminder to check out the free SOS Calm collection of meditations on Muse or Meditation Studio. And if you or your family want to learn to meditate while you're sheltering at home or deepen your practice, use the discount code MUSESTRESSLESS for your Muse headband. Now might be a great time to check it out at choosemuse.com. We're thinking of all of you and wishing you the very best. Now on to today's episode. Today's guest is Natalie Kogan. Natalie's an author, former VC, and the founder of Happier, a global technology and learning platform that helps individuals and organizations realize their full potential by adopting scientifically proven practices and tools to improve their well-being. My original interview with Natalie two years ago, episode 134, was called Stop Chasing Perfection and Be Happier Now, and has continued to be one of our most popular podcasts. In this interview, we talk about emotional health at work, during challenge, and uncertainty. Natalie goes through five skills that can help reduce stress and overwhelm, strategies to foster more human connection, which we all need right now, and always, and practices that can help strengthen a culture of openness, kindness, and gratitude. Now, here's Natalie. Natalie, it is so great to have you back on Untangle. Thanks for making the time. I'm so grateful. It's an honor. It was one of my favorite interviews, so I'm glad to be back. So you have a program now that you're offering to companies and to medical workers that is focused on emotional health at work during challenge and uncertainty. And I love what you say in the beginning of one of your documents. Change is constant in today's workplace, but the Mm -hmm. coronavirus has brought a fundamentally new level of challenge and uncertainty causing increased stress, anxiety, and fear. Mm. Will you start by giving us an overview of why you created this program and how you're working with individuals and with companies during this difficult time? Of course. I forget the eloquent quote around constraints being the mother of creativity. So what happened was, so I run a company called Happier and we have a whole division of what we do is called Happier at Work. And we teach emotional health skills to teams and leaders to help them be at their best and thrive and create a culture that is rooted in gratitude and kindness. And that's what we do. And when I was actually in San Francisco about five weeks ago, and I was supposed to do a series of keynotes at companies and they got canceled because this is when the city started to go on lockdown. And as I was flying home, I was emailing with my colleague in New York, and it was this moment of the world is changing, and the things Mm -hmm. that we've been teaching teams and companies, these emotional health skills, are going from a nice-to-have to to a must-have. Now, they were never nice-to-have to to me. I've always tried to articulate why they're must-have and the science behind it. And so this program came out of the recognition that... What we are all going through together right now is an incredibly stressful, traumatic experience. We are to different degrees, but we're all experiencing loss and fear and overwhelming degree of chronic stress. And we simply cannot get through this. I've been calling this a storm. We cannot get through this if we do not make the practice of our emotional health skills a number one priority. And so this is where 
the program came from. And I ultimately said, well, well how can I serve during this time? And so we created mm-hmm. this virtual program and we've been doing it for teams and companies and pro bono for hospitals and nursing associations and any way that we can bring it to the medical workers. I'm so glad you're doing this. I was listening to someone do a talk a few days ago about how what is happening now is creating the conditions for trauma, the preconditions, which means that everyone could potentially have post-traumatic stress syndrome from what they're going through now. And when you talk about the skills and practices that we all need to reduce the stress and to feel more uplifted and to feel more motivated and to boost our resilience. I mean, these are so important and their skills really everyone wishes they'd learned in grade school, but right. well, we I, haven't. I, yeah. So the good <laughs> news is now this situation is really inviting us to practice these skills. Absolutely. And I cannot tell you how many leaders and executives I've talked to over the last couple of weeks who have been open with me and said, I know this is important for my team, or I know that well-being matters, but I also recognize that right now it's non-negotiable that we invest in helping our employees with these skills. And so it's giving people access to make this a priority because we all recognize that we simply cannot get through this if we don't make our well-being and emotional health something that we devote energy to, that we focus on, and that we practice. And one of the things that I haven't said explicit, but is it's implicit in the words, is the cornerstone of my work and my approach is that emotional health is not a state of being or a feeling. It's a skill. And mm-hmm. happiness is a skill. And that To me, that is incredibly liberating. That is what changed my life. You know, I shared on the first episode that we did together that I came to this country as a refugee from the former Soviet Union and had an incredibly successful career achieving the height of corporate success across finance and media and all kinds of things that on paper looked incredible, but had completely burnt myself out because I had none of these skills accessible to me. And when I was coming out of my total breakdown and burnout, one of the things that completely shifted my approach was recognizing that my emotional health is a skill I can practice. That is not that some people are given it and some are not. Some situations allow for it and some don't. That it is a skill. And to me, this is why I'm eating about a box of cough drops a day because I'm doing four to eight of these virtual sessions every week to help teams and individuals and companies. Because right now, this is our lifeline. One of the analogies I've been using is we are all in a storm. And Mm -hmm. to get through Mm -hmm. the storm, we need a way to anchor ourselves. And these skills and practices are ways, are toolkits that we have to anchor ourselves so that we can get through the storm with resilience and with strength. Because otherwise, there is enough challenge right now in everyone's life to really become overwhelmed. I want to get into the toolkit But first, there's so many elements to why this pandemic is so scary and layers upon layers. But why do you think uncertainty and the uncertainty that comes along with this situation is creating so much stress and anxiety for people? I've actually done some research around uncertainty as I was getting ready to do these sessions because I noticed just within myself, it was triggering me. You know, I've gone through a lot of uncertainty in my life, obviously, coming here as a refugee, and I was having a lot of flashbacks to that time. And so 
it turns out that uncertainty is the most stressful condition the human brain can go through. It is easier for our brain to know that something bad will definitely happen than it is to deal with uncertainty. And the reason it is so is because I always say this, your brain's number one job is not to make you happy. Your brain's number one job is to keep you safe. And so our brain is constantly scanning, even before this crisis, our environment. Is it safe approach or is it dangerous then fight or flight, right? We all know we have this fight or flight response. And so what's happening right now, what's happening in uncertainty is our brain is trying to figure out, is it safe? Is it dangerous? And it doesn't have enough information because everything is changing all the time. There is by definition, no certainty. So the brain doesn't give up, right? It just works harder and harder and harder to try and figure out how to keep us safe. The way that it works harder and harder is by releasing stress hormones. That's essentially the fuel for this overwhelming work that the brain is doing. And so we are in an incredible degree of chronic stress on top of all the very real challenges we're all dealing with, right? From working from home to feeling isolated or homeschooling our kids or working on the front lines. In addition to that, and in addition to a very deep sense of loss we're all experiencing, we yeah. have this chronic like background music all the time of chronic stress of the brain trying to figure out, okay, I don't know how to stay safe. Is this safe? Is it dangerous? What do I do? And I think it is really important to acknowledge that and recognize that because so many folks have said, I don't know why I feel physically exhausted. Like I'm not traveling. I had this myself. I'm not flying. Usually I'm on a plane all the time. I haven't traveled in a month and a half. I'm sleeping in my own bed, right? I'm in my house, but I felt exhausted. Well, the reason is when we can't, when we feel that degree of chronic stress and we don't have an outlet for it, we take it into our body, right? So if you're feeling really achy right now or exhausted, it's coming from that chronic stress of uncertainty. And I think it's so important to acknowledge and recognize that. And that, again, reminds us that we have to elevate our well-being and practice of emotional health skills to something that we do daily. What's so interesting to me is that uncertainty is always present in our lives. Mm-hmm. and there's no question about uncertainty and impermanence and change. It's just that we're all so busy on autopilot that we don't pay attention to that. This pandemic has offered it up. We can't help but see how, we can't help but see this uncertainty. We can't help but see, I mean, so much has changed. With the people that you've been training of recently, how mm-hmm. are people adapting to this change, to the change in uncertainty? I mean, once you go through your skills, you give them the science-backed data, how are people adapting? One of the most powerful things that I've discovered on my journey and that I share with folks is, and it seems so obvious what I'm about to say, but it's something we lose track of a lot, especially in our very busy modern society, that there is the outer experience, right? The, the world. And right now it's just challenge after challenge. There's always challenge in life, right? There's always yes. uncertainty and challenge, but right now there's so much. And then there's the inner experience, our inner experience of that challenge. And while we cannot usually control the challenges, we can control our inner experience. We can help ourselves 
move through this with less struggle, with a little bit more ease, with a little bit less stress. And the biggest shift I am seeing in folks who really roll up their sleeves and say, okay, right now I really need to practice more acceptance or more gratitude or more kindness, which are some of the skills I teach that I know we'll talk about. The biggest shift that I'm seeing is it's not that somehow magically their lives become easy. They don't. It's not possible right now, but they're able to improve their inner experience of these outer challenges. And that is huge. That is emotional health. That is preservation and increase of emotional energy that they have to get through the daily challenges that they face. We talk about that as equanimity sometimes where Mm -hmm. we don't get thrown by the highs and lows and we have this ability to handle any experience that comes our way. And I love how you talk a lot about being with the full range of feelings that one has, regardless of what they are. Yes. Well, that's a huge, in these sessions that I've been doing in this, in really focused on helping people in this time, the two skills that I have been prioritizing the most, the first is a skill, this, what you're talking about, the skill of what I call acceptance. Now, Your listeners are probably very familiar with the word, but I want to just share how I define the skill of acceptance, and that is to look at how things are and how you feel with clarity instead of judgment, right? Judgment is anytime we hear the word should. I shouldn't feel this way, or it shouldn't be this way, right? That's judgment. So just clarity, just the facts, and acknowledging as part of that acceptance, acknowledging how you feel with clarity. So I'm overwhelmed, I'm scared, I'm stressed, and not well, I shouldn't feel bad because other people have it worse, right? There's a lot of the struggle comparison going on. That's judgment, right? So acceptance is seeing how you feel and how things are with clarity instead of judgment. And then the second step is given how you feel, what is one tiny, simple thing that you can do to honor this moment, to honor yourself, to honor maybe other people involved or your team or your family. And that is an incredibly powerful thing because once we allow ourselves to feel what we feel, which is so challenging. And I'm raising my hand. It is hard to allow yourself to feel scared. Most of us, there's a lot of research that shows that we are afraid that if we let ourselves feel a difficult feeling, we think we'll be stuck in it forever. And research actually shows the opposite. We allow ourselves to feel these difficult emotions without harshness or trying to run away from them or too much red wine or Netflix or whatever we actually get through them in a shorter amount of time and with less intensity because we're not wasting all of our emotional energy trying not to feel something. And then we can use that emotional energy to say, okay, I'm really overwhelmed. What is one simple thing I can do? Or something I've been hearing from people so much is, I am so worried about my loved ones, right? I've been hearing this in every session we've done from hundreds of people. Okay, like you acknowledge that, you acknowledge your worry, and then you say, what is one simple thing I can do? And for many of us, right, we're living far away from our families. We can't go physically help, but reaching out, telling them you're thinking about them or just sending them a note, checking in on them. Those are really powerful, simple actions because they take us out of being consumed by our worry and into a place where we're connecting with someone, where we are reaching out to them with kindness. And it's incredibly powerful. Again, it doesn't change the challenge, but it allows us to, instead of being fully consumed 
by the storm we're in to gain a sense of control, to say, okay, this is how I feel. This is one simple thing I can do. And it's challenging because it's not what our brain wants to do. Our brain would rather tell dramatic, dramatic stories. Just what makes us feel good. And sometimes the brain thinks if it tells a really bad story, it's a sense of control. But this practice of these two steps of acceptance, it's been life-changing for me and for so many people right now because it allows us, again, to just preserve some of our emotional energy by allowing ourselves to not fight with the difficult feelings that we have and then asking ourselves about these very simple things we can do to try to feel a little bit different, a little bit better. I really resonate with what you're saying because there is that moment where you feel something and then you start telling a story about how you feel and then you start ruminating in that and then you start going down this rabbit hole and that's really where people Mm. get stuck. And what you're saying is if you stop for a moment and you accept your emotions, you can respond. You're saying you can respond from an elevated place as an observer. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. in some practices, it's called witness mind, but that ability Mm -hmm. to be able to react from a place outside of that intense storytelling can be so helpful. And I also think it's interesting that that's a better place to do problem solving, right? So you have this moment in time where you can either jump into panic. Someone talked about it as there's that trigger moment where you go from problem solving to panic. And if you can pause in that trigger moment, you can make other choices so that you don't fall into that panic zone. And the other thing I want to just say about problem solving and decision-making, which again, we've been doing a lot of this for teams at work, for leaders and So I think it's really helpful to understand why it's so important. And especially when I'm doing these sessions for nurses or doctors, I always remind myself of this or my husband, when we get stressed out about work, what we do is not life or death. If we make the wrong choice, no one is going to die. But these (laughs) heroes of ours, right? Our nurses and doctors, they are making decisions that are life or death. And so I think Mm. it's really important to recognize what chronic stress does to our ability to make a decision. So I think your listeners may be aware, because I know I was aware of this even uh, tangentially, that when we are in a short-term stress, our brain actually gets pretty sharp. And that is true. So when you're in a moment of stress, your brain gets really, really sharp. And I think we've all like when you've nearly avoided an accident, right? Hitting another car, your brain like is really quick to react. So short-term stress makes our brain sharper. When we're in a state of chronic stress, the opposite happens. Our brain interprets chronic stress as danger. During danger, brain has to optimize for fight or flight, right? So when you are under chronic stress, your thighs actually get stronger, believe it or not, because you're ready to run. Your vision narrows physically because you need to really see the danger, right? We're trained for physical danger. That's what our brain thinks we're protecting ourselves from. Certain functions of the brain become weaker after chronic stress. Some of those are things like analytical thinking. So research shows that people who experience a lot of chronic stress make gut decisions without really looking at all information available to them. They make decisions without involving their team and therefore make the wrong decision because they didn't hear someone's perspective. Because the brain is saying, we're in fight or flight. 
I don't have time to listen to my team. I don't have time to really evaluate this protocol. I'm just going to make a gut call and we make really wrong decisions. And so the same with problem solving, right? If you're under this chronic stress, if you're in a state of fear, you're not really acting. You're just going to react, right? You're not really seeing the full problem. You're not able to have your full capacity of decision-making and analytical thought. So you actually cannot solve problems. And this is why practicing emotional health skills like acceptance is so essential right now, whether you are a mom of two kids or an author working on your book or an executive leading a team, because it truly helps you have your wits about you. Otherwise, the chronic stress takes over and the brain deprioritizes things like analytical thinking that we really need right now more than ever. Thank you for making that so pragmatic for us. So you have, we talked about this, five skills, and the first is acceptance, and the second Mm -hmm. is gratitude. Let's talk about gratitude. I've told our listeners on a few interviews we've done around the coronavirus that I have a practice every morning that I do where I list the five things I'm really grateful for from the previous day, and sometimes hard to do. Um, And so I'll just say the sun came out for five minutes, or I had a great cup of coffee. I'll just pick something small. Many times there are big things that are lovely if you really think Mm -hmm. about it, but sometimes you just go for the small things. Will you talk a little bit about your philosophy of making an active choice to notice the small positive moments in our lives, even when we're in this challenging situation? Especially when we're in this challenging situation. So the first thing I want to tell you, I want to tell this to you and to everyone listening the small things are actually more powerful. So research shows that it's the frequency of small positive experiences that leads to life satisfaction versus big things. So practicing gratitude, I call it gratitude zoom in my book. So like zoom in on the smallest things, do that. That is actually more specific. The more specific and the smaller you can be in what you're grateful for, the more of like a gratitude archaeologist you become. There's more and more and more things you start to notice. So the small things are incredibly powerful. And the thing I want to just mention around gratitude is there's 11,000 different studies that show how gratitude is the most direct path to feeling more uplifted, more joyful, happier. So there's tremendous research that shows that it helps us feel better. But gratitude is also the greatest source of resilience when you're going through a hard time, which is where we all are right now. And that is because when we are in a challenging environment, all of our negativity bias, which we naturally have, gets even stronger. So we are even more susceptible to being affected by bad news, by anything frustrating that happens. And we are all in this real danger of constantly going to this negativity spiral because we are in an acute state of stress. And the most powerful way to counter that is to practice gratitude. Because when you zoom in on the things that are good in your life, however small, you are literally reminding your brain, this challenge you are going through is not everything. There is more to your life than just this challenge. And that reminder helps the brain not spin out into this negativity thought spiral. And it is incredibly powerful. I share this practice. I call it gratitude antidote. It's incredibly simple. When you find yourself really overwhelmed or stressed out or worried, can you pause? Acceptance is always first. So can you acknowledge how you're feeling? And then can you use that as a reminder to think of something you're grateful for? And the shorthand I use is, okay, I'm really stressed out, but I'm really grateful. And then fill that in and be specific. Find the small things. And 
It's a really powerful practice. I teach it usually to leaders who are in a really stressful situation, but it's so powerful for all of us because gratitude then becomes a source of resilience through the storm that it's this constant reminder that yes, many things are difficult, but there are many good things still. And that helps our brain not be caught up in this constant negativity thinking. It's so important that you use the term a gratitude archaeologist, because sometimes Mm -hmm. you do have to excavate to see Mm -hmm. what's there. And to your point about these things aren't automatic and that we need to practice them to develop the skill, I think gratitude is such a great example of that because it's actually relatively simple to practice. You just have to do it. And it seems like it's less important than it really is. Once you start practicing it, I think you really do see how important a skill it becomes. Well, you know, I have this analogy that I use, you know, when I'm on stage of speaking, I'll often say gratitude is like broccoli. You know, we all know broccoli is good for us, right? Like all of us know that broccoli is nutritious and healthy, but you only get the benefits of broccoli if you eat it. Like knowing that broccoli is good for you does not give you the minerals and the vitamins. You have to eat it. It's the same with gratitude. You know, I asked my audience and I said, raise your hand if you know gratitude is good for you. Like almost everyone raises their hand. And then I say, raise your hand if you practice it every day. And just a few people raise their hands. And so we have to eat the broccoli. We have to practice the gratitude. And sometimes we have this tendency to dismiss small things. I was in this camp. I share this in my book. I was, I'm was i a recovering gratitude skeptic. When I was struggling and I encountered all this research on gratitude, I thought it was a bunch of BS. Because how could something so simple as focusing on what I appreciate in my life, what did that have to do with helping me feel less overwhelmed or stressed out? Like I thought it was a bunch of BS. And so to all the people who feel like, oh, I don't know, gratitude seems too simplistic. I'm with you. I was there, but I went on a 30-day gratitude experiment. My father's a scientist. I love science. You can tell I use a lot of science in my work. So I I could deal with an experiment, right? I was like, I'm not committing to this. I'm going to do it for 30 days, and it's definitely going to fail. Like, that was my thing. And for 30 days, I said I would write down three things I'm grateful for every day, and I'd have one grateful interaction with another person. And I announced it to my family, my husband and my daughter. And about two weeks in, we were in a cafe near our house. We go there all the time, and there was a couple next to us. It was obvious they'd never been there. So I was like leaning over, telling them about stuff I like to eat there. And then the waiter came out. I was chatting with the waiter, and then I saw the chef. I went to say hello, and I come back. My husband looks at me like I have 27 heads. He's like, I'm like, what is wrong? He's like, who are you? I don't understand. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, you are here. You are so relaxed. You're enjoying this. You're like chit-chatting with everyone. And I said to him like, wait, what do you mean? Did I used to be bitchy or something? He said, no, but I've never seen you actually be present where we are. Our whole life, my husband and I have been together for 23 years. So he's really seen me through it all. He said, and I'll never forget that moment because that was a turning point for me. He said, the way that you've always been is wherever we are, you're already in the next place. Because all of these little things like saying hi to a waiter or telling a couple at the next table what was good or enjoying brunch with my family, they were too small. They were these little moments. They were just means to an end because I was chasing some big happiness euphoria that I thought you get after you achieve enough in your life. So I ignored all these little moments. But once I started to honor them with my gratitude and my presence, 
they fueled me with so much joy. And I'll never forget that day. I share the story a lot because that was a turning point for me. I had to have the humility to say, you know what? The research is right. And this is not BS. This is an incredibly powerful way that I can truly fuel myself with so much good energy and joy. The third skill that you have is being kind to others. And Mm -hmm. I usually think of that in terms of being of service, which is very hard for most of us to do right now because we Mm -hmm. can't go anywhere and we can't help people and we can't volunteer. But we have a little bit of a broader definition to this. So will you talk about that? Yes. So I define the skill of intentional kindness as doing something to help elevate or support another person and not expecting anything in return. And right now, more than ever, when we are physically distancing, but socially isolating, which is the term I prefer. So we're physically distancing, but socially connecting to each other. We need kindness more than ever because we as human beings truly cannot function when we don't feel like we belong and we're connected to others. When you do something kind, again, as tiny as like thinking of someone you care about, letting them know that you care or asking them how they're doing, in that moment, your brain tells you this feels really good. Your brain releases serotonin and oxytocin. Those are two neurotransmitters that make us feel really good, right? So our brain wants us to do more kind things. We feel really good, but not only do you feel good, you feel less alone. The number one health problem in America is isolation. And think about what's happening right now. Think about how many people are isolated, are not connected, are feeling lonely. So we need our kindness and our sense of connection more than ever. And so this practice of connecting with each other, just sharing a piece of your humanity with someone else is the practice of intentional kindness. And it is incredibly powerful and incredibly simple. And then you also talk about regularly connecting. This is the fourth skill regularly connecting with your sense of meaning and purpose. And you define this as really connecting to your bigger why. And I think this is always important, but we talk about why you feel it's always important, but also why now that's so much more important. Yes. And it is easier for us to get through stress when we give it context, right? So Mm -hmm. if we're just stressed, it's just overwhelming. But if we say, well, this is stressful, but I'm going through this so that I can contribute in some way to my family or my community, or I can improve my craft in some way. That gives you context. And you know, one of my favorite, favorite writers and thinkers, Viktor Frankl, the incredible psychotherapist and psychologist, his book, Man's Search for Meaning, is one I recommend to every single human alive. And I quote it quite a bit in my book. And He's someone, I think most people know his story, but he was a psychotherapist. He was captured and put in a concentration camp. And he wrote this book afterwards because he said what he discovered is everything could be taken from a man. Everything. Like he was made to walk around naked around the camp. I mean, I cannot even imagine that experience. But his ability to choose how he reacts. And he chose to react by connecting to his sense of purpose. And his sense of purpose was two. One, he thought his family might still be alive and he wanted to get to them. It turns out they were killed. And the second, he said he had all this work he wanted to share with the world. It doesn't have to be something as grand as you're in a concentration camp and you want to share your work with the world. Like we all cannot be Viktor Frankl. And so really the way to find your sense of purpose is by asking yourself how the everyday things you are doing at home or at work, how do they help someone else? How do they contribute to someone else? And so if you're cooking dinner for your family and you're exhausted, overwhelmed, can you ask yourself, well, who does this help? 
right? And answer the question. If there's a project you need to do for work and you're feeling really stuck, like so many people right now are asking me how to stay motivated and it's really hard, can you ask yourself, who does this help? And actually answer that question. And that is where most of us find our sense of purpose is by connecting how what we are doing as part of our daily tasks, how that is contributing to someone other than ourselves. Yeah, it's such a good way to think about things. And your fifth skill, and then I want to—I have a few more questions for you, but your fifth skill is really about self-care. How do we mm-hmm. actively nurture our friendship with ourselves and practice self-compassion? Yes. And to we talk about rest and renewal and recovery and how important all of these things are to feeling our greater sense of well-being. Absolutely. And at the core, really, the way that I define the skill of self-care is cultivating a kinder friendship with yourself. It's treating yourself as you would a friend. And it's not how I treated myself for most of my life. It is not how many of us treat ourselves. Many of us are much kinder to others than we are to ourselves. And when I dug in for why I was doing that, why others are, there's this sense like we don't deserve our own care, that it's indulgent in some way, that we really should be there for others. Well, you can't give what you don't have. If you are drained and exhausted, you really cannot show up fully at your best for your family, your friends, your colleagues. You simply cannot. And so self-care is the least selfish thing you can do because when you treat yourself as you would a friend, when you do that, you truly give yourself the opportunity. You give yourself the energy, the resilience to be there for all of the people in the work that you love. And so it is actually a way to serve others, but you have to start with you. Right now, it looks like people are asking you, how do they balance priorities and create more energy during the day? And there's a mention that on a couple of sessions I've done, there's like, there's something going around. I guess someone famous said something on Twitter, something that was like, if during this time you haven't started a podcast or written your book, like you'll never do it. And it's well, like, oh, really? In the middle of a pandemic, when we are truly losing everything we value and we have so much fear and so much challenge, we're supposed to be starting a podcast. But the thing is, I think that many of us, myself included, when the lockdown began, definitely had this moment of like, oh, I'm not commuting to work or I'm not traveling. I'll have more time. The thing is, it's not like we're all at home doing nothing. We have jobs and for some of us kids and the worry and the stress, we are going through a traumatic experience. So we should be expecting less of ourselves, not more. Think about all the things we just talked about all of the energy that is going towards the stress and the worry and the anxiety. And so the slogan right now, and this was, you know, I shared this on Instagram and like became one of the most popular things I've ever shared of like, your job is not to be at your best in a storm. Your job is to make it through. That is your job. That is the standard. Are you making it through? And that is actually part of practicing self-compassion. And so the big slogan is, we are not trained to excel at storms. All we need to do right now is just to get through and hopefully with an ability to help people around us get through. But again, the other thing I've been talking a lot about is please don't expect endless grace and perfection from yourself in the storm. Like I wrote the other day about how I snapped at my family and screamed and slammed a door and stormed out of the house. And I didn't want to share this. I'm a person who runs a company called Happier, right? But I wanted to be really real. And I came back and I apologized and we sat on the floor and ate chocolate cookies because that's what you do in a storm. But I shared that to say, like, I did not beat myself up. 
I practiced acceptance and self-compassion and I shared it to encourage everyone to recognize like, yeah, we're going to snap at people right now. Yeah, we're not going to be that productive all the time. That is okay. We are in a storm. We're not in a new normal. We're in a temporary, very difficult traumatic experience. Thank you so much for all you're doing to help people feel better during this time and all the time. You're just a a great spirit. So I'm so appreciative that you were able to be on our show today. Well, I'm so grateful we got a chance to have this conversation. Thank you so much for your thoughtful questions. And I truly hope that every single human being who listens to this finds at least one thing they can take with them in their life and practice it to find a little bit more ease in the storm. Thanks so much to Natalie for today's interview. You can learn more about her work at happier.com. Her book is available at all major booksellers. And as always, if you have comments or suggestions, email us at untangle at choosemuse.com. And don't forget to check out Muse with the Muse Stress Less Discount at choosemuse.com. We'll see you next week.